Welcome to another episode of On Becoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. Just a quick reminder that you can find On Becoming on Twitter at OnBecomingPod and Instagram at OnBecomingPodcast. I'd love to hear from you. If you have any comments on the podcast or particular episodes, you can reach me at onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. And if you're enjoying the podcast, I hope you'll support the podcast on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast. Today, football is their religion. I'm not going to say that football is, well, sort of like religion. Instead, I believe it actually qualifies as religion for many people. And I have no intention of saying that this is somehow bad, though I do wonder whether football fulfills enough of the human need to have something sacred that binds us together. By the way, I'm using the term football in both the American sense and the sense that most other people in the world use that term to refer to what Americans call soccer. Both American football and soccer qualify as religions, though I'll mainly be addressing American football in this episode simply because there's already so much to say about that. In his book, The Righteous Mind, the moral psychologist Jonathan Haidt has a chapter titled Religion is a Team Sport. I'm going to be following Haidt's analysis in this episode, though I'll obviously be adding my own thoughts. But I think Haidt is fundamentally correct that football absolutely can be accurately described as religious. If you think that's strange, it's only because you are so used to thinking about religion using very narrow categories. Of course, our discussion today will weave in and around the idea of football precisely because in order to make sense of football as a religion, we need to dispel certain ideas about how religions arise and what they're about. Haidt begins his chapter by giving a lengthy analysis of American football as played at his university, the University of Virginia, or UVA. He notes that the rituals for both teams can be described as tribal. That is, they bring together people to form a group that sees itself as being in opposition to the other group. On game day, people get dressed up. Men wear UVA neckties, while women wear skirts or dresses. Some students paint their faces with the logo of the team. In other words, people don't just show up in worn hoodies and sweatpants. The dress-up is part of the ritual. We've already noted that chemical substances have been part of many religious celebrations, and UVA is no exception. Since the entire day is focused on the game, people start drinking at pregame parties and brunch, continue partying during the game, and don't stop afterward. During the game, students will lock their arms together and, in here I'm quoting hate, sway as a single mass while singing the praises of their community. They will also pump their fists in the air while singing a battle chant that goes, Wahoo-wa, Wahoo-wa, Uni-vi, Virgin-ia. Hoorah, Ray, hoorah, Ray, 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 U-V-A. If you're thinking, well, that doesn't really make much sense, let me point out that it's not designed to make any sense. Instead, it's designed to unite people around their alma mater. That's all that matters in regard to the chant. 
Haidt is using the same Durkheimian conception of religion in his analysis that we've been discussing earlier. Durkheim's view is that beliefs and practices work to unify a group together into a single community. Haidt is speaking of the entire game day when he says, it is a religious rite that does just what it is supposed to do. It pulls people up from Durkheim's lower level, the profane, to his higher level, the sacred. It flips the hive switch and makes people feel for a few hours that they are simply part of a whole. Remember that Durkheim thinks that human beings are homo duplex, since we are able to have both a sense of the individual self and also a sense of being part of a communal whole. Given the way religion functions, if we want to understand religion, we can't merely study lone individuals. That last point is central to Haidt's argument in favor of defining football as a religion, but also his argument against the people often called the new atheists. To set up the problem, Haidt begins with what happened in the wake of 9-11. While some commentators claim that Islam was a religion of peace, others argue that it was essentially a violent religion. For people who had questions about the value of religious belief, 9-11 confirmed in their minds that Islam was a religion of violence. But then some scholars move from saying that Islam is a religion of violence to saying that all religions, well, apart from Buddhism, are violent. Haidt describes the change as follows. After decades of culture war in the United States over the teaching of evolution in public schools, some scientists saw little distinction between Islam and Christianity. In other words, they're both violent. To such scientists, and here I'm quoting Haidt, all religions are delusions that prevent people from embracing science, secularism, and modernity. Here are some examples. Sam Harris publishes a book titled The End of Faith, Religion, Terror, and the Future of Reason. Richard Dawkins publishes a book I've already mentioned called The God Delusion. And Christopher Hitchens brings out a book called God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. Just those titles tell you quite a bit about their basic attitude toward religion. Although Hitchens is a journalist, Haight reminds us that Harris and Dawkins claim to be scientists, which should be characterized by open-mindedness and a commitment to grounding any claims one makes upon reason and empirical evidence, rather than emotion or what people call faith. What unites the new atheists is their definition of religion in terms of belief in supernatural agents. Sam Harris says, a belief is a lever that once pulled moves almost everything else in a person's life. Just to be clear, their point is that religion, all religions, boil down to simply this belief in supernatural agents which would, of course, include God, but also possible entities such as angels or demons. If you've been listening to the podcast, you already know that the New Atheist's central claim is completely bogus. I've already pointed out that many religions don't have the concept of the supernatural. You can only have such a concept which, once you've already defined some sphere as natural, and then you set up some other sphere as supernatural. Those of us who grew up in the West think that this is distinction is simply obvious, whereas much of the rest of the world simply doesn't have the distinction. 
Moreover, the focus of the new atheists, what they take religion to be about, is belief in God. Here it's helpful to add some points that hate doesn't address. For instance, we've already pointed out that many religions are non-theistic, so at best, such a definition could only work for certain religions and thus would exclude the rest. But there's something much more problematic. The new atheists have precious little understanding of what religion is, most likely because, well, they probably never studied religion. They just assume that their basic assumptions about religion are obviously true, which is why they never stop to question those assumptions. Again, a central feature of this podcast is the questioning of assumptions, a refusal to simply accept our usual ways of thinking. One of those unquestioned assumptions is that religion is about belief. But as I've already pointed out, Christianity is an outlier in this emphasis on belief. It's really the only religion that makes belief so central. Sure, other religions have beliefs, but those beliefs aren't central, and one doesn't qualify as an adherent simply on the basis of those beliefs. Put another way, the new atheists continue the belief, yes, I've used that word on purpose, that Christianity is the model for all other religions, and thus, in their own way, are guilty of Western cultural imperialism. The new atheists are no less cultural imperialists than Christians, they are playing by the same rules. It's just that they're on the other team. Even adopting the term atheist means that one has already accepted the rules of the game. What I'm trying to do in this podcast is to show that we need to question those rules and the game itself. Now, hate provides a diagram for what the new atheist conception of belief looks like, namely, Belief leads to doing. Hate thinks that supernatural agents play a role in religion. Uh, alas, enlightened as he is, he himself doesn't seem to get this idea that belief in supernatural agents is only true for certain religions. But he does get one important point. Focusing on beliefs results in a poor understanding of religion. Here's what he says. Trying to understand the persistence and passion of religion by studying beliefs about God is like trying to understand the persistence and passion of college football by studying the movements of the ball. You have to broaden the inquiry. You've got to look at the ways that religious beliefs work with religious practices to create a religious community. In place of this believing and doing paradigm, most people who study religion think that the paradigm is more accurately about believing, doing, and belonging. Now, it's at this point that hate introduces a point that could be slightly offensive to religious believers, namely, the idea that many of our beliefs are constructs created after the fact that either are used to justify our behavior or provide support for whatever group we belong to. You'll have to decide for yourself what to make of this claim. If we were to apply it to Christianity, one could talk about the seemingly endless debates in the first few centuries about exactly who Jesus was. I've already pointed out that as far as we can tell, most early Christians were docetists. That is, they thought that Jesus wasn't really human, and so his appearance as a human being was an illusion. 
Then along came the Arians, who argued either that Jesus wasn't divine in the same way that the Father was divine, or else simply that Jesus wasn't actually God, but human. One can certainly believe that the Holy Spirit eventually guided Christians to the true belief as found in the Nicene Creed. Or one could argue, following hate, that these theological formulations were post-hoc and thus designed to provide theoretical justification in Jesus. Here, I'm merely laying out these two possibilities. Whether either is true is something you will have to decide for yourself. But I do think there's something important to add here. In earlier chapters of Haight's book, he provides a pretty sophisticated argument to the effect that while human beings often think of their views as purely rational, many of our beliefs come about by way of intuitions. His research shows that in regard to our moral views, these at least originate in our intuitive reactions to situations, what we might call our gut-level beliefs. Then, according to him, if we're asked to provide a justification, we invent one after the fact. So the order is this. One, we get an intuitive sense regarding whether a given action is right or wrong. And two, we then find some kind of argument to justify what we've already come to believe. But the argument isn't the reason we came to believe something. It's only the reason we supply to others, or maybe to ourselves. In other words, if no one asks us to justify our ethical positions, we normally don't even feel a need to defend or ground them. This point will become the focus of at least one future episode, if not a number of episodes. But I do want to add something really important here. Nietzsche shows us that the kinds of arguments that most resonate with us are not the theoretical, rational ones. They're the ones we feel in our guts. Here's what he says. Our most sacred convictions, the unchanging elements in our supreme values, are judgments of our muscles. That's a remarkable statement. The point of Nietzsche's assertion is that we think as embodied beings. We are not just minds floating around. That's why Nietzsche thinks logical reasoning is, in many cases, unconvincing. Let me put this more strongly. Our most sacred convictions, to use Nietzsche's terminology, the things that we care most about, the things we most believe in, cannot easily be changed by logical arguments. There's no way that I can stress this point enough. If you don't understand this point, then you simply don't understand how human beings come to and hold their convictions. Nietzsche's explanation for this is the following. He says, there is more reason in your body than in your best wisdom. Now that needs some explanation. You probably know that the human brain has three components that evolved over thousands of years. About 300,000, it would seem. Our reptilian brain is the oldest component of our brain. Just the name should tell you that this kind of brain has been around for a long time. Scientists think that this part of the brain goes back to the brains of fish approximately 500 million years ago. The next evolutionary development of the human brain is the limbic brain which goes back to small mammals approximately 150 million years ago. The limbic brain is where we come up with our moral judgments. Conversely, the neocortex, 
is only about one or two million years old. And that's where advanced reasoning takes place. But of course, if it's the case that our moral judgments are formulated in the limbic brain, then the real job of the neocortex is to find a rationale to explain our judgments. Of course, it should be clear that all of our reasoning in defense of our value judgments is ad hoc. We come up with our views regarding morality, and then we try to justify those views by way of rationality. P to put all of this together, Nietzsche is claiming that we are most convinced by the kind of reasoning that takes place on the gut level. We are least convinced by an elaborate argument that requires multiple steps. Nietzsche, of course, didn't have access to contemporary neuroscience, so he wouldn't have been able to use it to show that he was correct. But we do, and it turns out that Nietzsche was, once again, way ahead of his time. Logical arguments have value, but they are not nearly as effective as judgments that we feel. We are most convinced by our gut-level intuitions. These intuitions, of course, can be and often are refined and even corrected by theoretical reasoning. But our deepest convictions come from intuition. That's all I'm going to say about the human brain for now, though we'll come back to this later. I suspect that for many of you listening, this point about where our convictions come from may be surprising and perhaps even a bit shocking. I think most of us want to believe that all of our beliefs, religious, political, economic, whatever, are fully based on highly developed and very critical, logical thinking. But if scientists are right about how the human brain operates, then that assumption is either not quite right or else really wrong. Once you come to see this, you will understand why most political debates, I'm putting the word debates here in air quotes, why they go nowhere. People don't usually come to their political convictions by way of dialectical reasoning or syllogisms. I'm not ruling that out as a possibility, but that's not the way most people come to their convictions. Instead, they come to those convictions by way of their limbic system, by way of their muscles, by way of their body which is why changing people's minds about political beliefs requires getting them to feel that another view is right. Let me give you an example. People who initially hate or find queer people objectionable can change that view. But the main way it changes is that they come to meet a queer person and realize that such a person is truly a human person, just like them. They discover that a queer person isn't so bad after all, and so they feel differently about that person. In light of that point, let's turn to the claim made by Richard Dawkins that he terms the God hypothesis. There exists a superhuman, supernatural intelligence who deliberately designed and created the universe and everything in it, including us. His entire book is an attempt to refute such an idea. Of course, if you've read his book, you'll know that it consists of, oh, sad to say, one bad argument after another. There are so many fallacies that even atheistic philosophy professors love to quote parts of the book to use as examples of how not to argue. It's worth mentioning here that Haight is himself an atheist, so this argument is between two atheists, 
not an atheist and a theist. Of course, given Nietzsche's point, one can probably say that Dawkins came to his view that God does not exist intuitively, and then casts about for arguments to support that belief. Dawkins claims that religion consists of, and here I'm quoting, time-consuming, wealth-consuming, hostility-provoking rituals that end up being counterproductive. But Dawkins seems to be absolutely oblivious to the point I made two episodes ago, namely that religion played a key role in human evolution. In contrast to Dawkins, Haight marshals considerable evidence from evolutionary biology to show that religion has actually been crucial in creating moral communities, that is, communities that foster trust and cooperation. But there's more here. Haight points out that in explaining the existence of religion, one really only has two possibilities. One can accept that religion was evolutionarily beneficial, or and here I'm quoting eight, you have to construct a complicated, multi-step explanation of how humans in all known cultures came to swim against the tide of adaptation and do so much self-destructive religious stuff. That's what the new atheists do, and it means that they have to make their case by using all sorts of weird arguments. The first is what they call the hypersensitive agency detection device, Human beings and other animals, of course, continually face the difficulty of determining whether something that happens is caused by another being, a dog, a woolly mammoth, versus simply happening. In other words, you hear a sound. Is it some being about to attack you, or is it merely the wind whistling through the trees? The new atheists claim that this detection device simply goes wrong, and it attributes agency to the wind or the sun or the rain. It's all caused by God or gods. Another possibility is what Dawkins calls the gullible learning module. Here I'm quoting. There will be a selective advantage to child brains that possess the rule of thumb. Believe, without question, whatever your grown-ups tell you. Both of these hypotheses rely on the idea that a basic conception or belief can serve a purpose initially, but then be used in harmful and fallacious ways. Well, that certainly is true. But if you know anything about Occam's razor, you realize that such arguments end up being far more complicated, far more convoluted than simply admitting that religion has an evolutionary base. And the problem then is that the arguments of the new atheists seem themselves so suspiciously ad hoc, which means they're just making them up. But then doesn't it sound like Dawkins begins with a gut-level belief that there are no supernatural agents, and then has to construct an elaborate but not very convincing argument to justify his gut-level belief? Hate doesn't actually make this point. But I hope you can now see Dawkins' argument for what it is. He's arguing against people who have come to believe in God on a gut level. But he's using his own gut level belief as a starting point, and then tries to construct a logical argument. Although Dawkins wants to claim that his argument is scientific, it's not obviously more scientific than the view he's arguing against. The new atheists agree, somehow, that we came up with beliefs like the belief in God, and those beliefs led us to think many irrational things. 
In the case of Daniel Dennett, religion is like a parasite that lives within us and causes us to do crazy stuff. Dawkins uses the analogy of a virus that reproduces itself in its host in order to spread. So religion is a virus that spreads from one human being to another. I suspect that most of you listening can immediately see what's wrong with both of these analogies. Parasites and viruses are living organisms. Religions aren't. So neither analogy can get off the ground. And here's where we have to go back to football. The scientists who aren't on the new atheist team, as Haight likes to put it, have a very different story to tell. Remember how the UVA students were brought together to form a unit by dressing in a certain way, wearing face paint, moving in unison while chanting the old UVA chant? Evolutionary biologists argue that religion evolves to give a group cohesion and enable them to cooperate better. If you have any doubt about that, consider how well a football team would do if the players were uncooperative and just did their own thing. In place of the model used by the new atheists, uh, what hate calls believing leads to doing, hate proposes an alternative model, and that is belonging, believing, doing. On his model, none of these features exist on their own. Yet hate argues that belonging and doing are actually more important than believing. That point becomes obvious when you think of how a group like a football team or the fans of a team connect. Groups that are able to see themselves as a moral community, in other words, they have a sense of obligation to one another, are much more likely to succeed. I mentioned that most hunter-gatherer communities went to war about every two years. In such a case, war would have been a prominent feature of life, particularly since such groups didn't have the luxury of getting someone else to fight their wars. In order for a community or a football team to have a sense of unity, there has to be a shared conception of what counts as bad behavior. It should be no surprise, then, that such things as murder, lying, not keeping your promise, stealing, and adultery would be seen as bad. Why? Because they threaten to break down the community. Players who hog the ball or act as independent units aren't usually beneficial to the team. Everyone's heard the old, there's no I in team. If the community or team isn't united, it can't fight effectively. It's at this point that we can see why the notion of a god who can see everything becomes useful from an evolutionary standpoint. It should be obvious that people are less likely to follow the rules when they're alone, that is, when no one is watching. Haight makes reference to various psychological studies that confirm this. One study shows that simply dimming the lighting in a room makes students more likely to cheat on an exam. Or in another case, subjects in studies are less likely to cheat when they are asked to unscramble sentences that have words connected to the idea of God. The anthropologist Richard Sosis did a study of communes formed in the United States during the 19th century. The most important variable in terms of the success of the commune, success measured by whether it continued to function, was the degree to which the commune imposed demanding expectations on its members. Things like dietary expectations, uh, forbidding alcohol, forbidding tobacco, having a dress code. The costlier the religion, Saucis found, the more effective it was in binding people together, 
more effective in building trust, more effective in making for a peaceful society. Now, that point explains the success of certain groups. Normally, we call them cults, such as Mormon groups and Jehovah's Witnesses, both of which have very demanding expectations for their members. In contrast, a group like American Episcopalians simply don't have a similar degree of cohesiveness. If we consider this in terms of football, which team is going to do better? The one that is lax about how players live and train, or the one that is very strict and demanding? Put another way, while coaches get players to do a lot of things designed to train them, some of those things are less connected to the actual playing of the game, and more to do simply with building group cohesion. We talked about the account of McNeil, who gets drafted in the army and then spends hours each day marching around in the Texas heat. And of course, he wonders what the point of this is. And then he comes to realize that it provides cohesion. Well, marching only has something to do with actual warfare. The marching builds the group together. Yet Sosa's determined there was another variable in addition to making adherence to a given religion costly. The degree to which those expectations could be seen as sacred. You might wonder, what makes being a teetotaler sacred? The answer is surprisingly simple. If the community takes something to be sacred, then it is sacred. All we need to do is have an idea of the sacred and that we agree that it's sacred. What it is doesn't really matter. Now, it's interesting that in terms of what Americans call soccer, uh, the famed player Pele said, and here I'm quoting, football is like a religion to me. I worship the ball and treat it like a god. His fellow footballer, Diego Maradona, simply says, Football isn't a game, nor a sport. It's a religion. You might already have thought about the fact that the winning team across the world in soccer gets what's called the World Cup, and it's not hard to connect that to the Eucharistic chalice. Of course, the more the players have a sense of the sacred, which could simply be the hope of winning over a rival team, the more likely they are to work together toward that common goal. Here we've come to an extremely important point in understanding football as religion. Even though the University of Virginia wasn't founded as a religious institution, hearing the description of the UVA football game should make you realize that something sacred is at work. Perhaps it's the sacrality of the institution, or the sacrality of football, or the sacrality of the common goal of winning. Sacrality is something at work in our everyday lives, our groups, our cultures tell us that certain things are sacred. For many people across the world, their respective countries are sacred in some sense. Americans wax eloquently about the founders of the nation, its constitution, and its commitment to democracy. Here in the UK, I've actually heard a sermon given at a Scottish Episcopal church about the National Health Service. You might ask, a sermon about the NHS? But his point was that the NHS, which is available to everyone without payment, is a concrete demonstration that everyone's life is sacred. 
The sacred, of course, is whatever we most care about. If you find that the things we usually call religions don't seem attractive, then my question is going to be, what's your most sacred thing? Or around what sacred thing do you organize your life? It may well be that you've never asked what your own version of the sacred is. But if you spend a little time, you can probably figure it out. One way to figure it out is by considering how much time you spend and how much money you spend on certain things. Together, those things will often tell you what you truly value. Hate also draws our attention to something that's a bit like sport, the traditional maypole dance. It's something found in northern Europe that predates Christianity. It involves six men and six women dancing in opposite directions around a pole. Each of them carries a ribbon, and as they dance, the ribbons get woven together. While we don't know when such behavior first appeared, it seems like it's a practice that goes back thousands of years. Of course, that's just one example of something that involves bodily movement that binds people together. But it's an example of something that is clearly religious. Anthropologists believe that human beings have been religious in this sort of sense for about 50,000 years. The oldest organized religion is Hinduism, which is usually dated back to somewhere between the 15th century BCE to the 5th century BCE. Even if we go with the oldest possible date, that still leaves 35,000 years unaccounted for. In other words, organized religion is relatively new. It doesn't occur until very late in our evolution. But note that the hunter-gatherer religions don't count as organized, precisely because there's no hierarchy, there's no church or synagogue or mosque, and there are no priests or pastors or rabbis. But let's turn our attention at this point in a slightly different direction. I've already made the point that UVA is what most people would call a secular institution. You may know that Harvard, Yale, and Princeton were founded to train pastors. That was their original purpose. None of them are religious today. But what happens when something as religious as football is played by a religious school? I can think of no better example than the University of Notre Dame probably the most important Roman Catholic university in North America. As you probably know, Notre Dame is not merely religious. Its religious mission is central to everything it does. It pervades the entire culture and is present in the classroom. But Notre Dame also happens to have one of the best and most respected football teams in North America. So what happens when those two things come together? One can find a raft of information at the Notre Dame website devoted to football and faith at experiencesandevents.nd.edu. Just, just so you know, it's experiencesandevents.nd.edu. And once you get there, click on Football Game Day. The first word you'll probably note is faith in large letters. Under that, you'll see the following, and here I'm quoting. Notre Dame invites everyone to join in the celebration of the Holy Eucharist while on campus. 
Mass is celebrated at various locations and times throughout the home game weekend. There are nine Masses throughout the weekend, and then there is Vespers on Sunday evening. And guests, people coming to watch the game, are also invited to pray the rosary before the game. The times are clearly listed according to game time. 10.30 a.m. for the 2.30 p.m. kickoff and 2.30 p.m. for the 7.30 p.m. kickoff. And there are short organ concerts throughout the day on Friday. Those are the official events. But the unofficial events are even more interesting. First, before going out on the field, each player touches the famous Play Like a Champion Today sign. Usually, this is broadcast on the stadium screen for everyone present to see while the players are running through the tunnel out onto the field. Second, there's always a prayer in the locker room before the game, and this is also regularly broadcast in the stadium. Third, one of the best attended events surrounding game day is the Knights of Columbus Steak Sandwich Sale. Fourth, all home games include an event called Saturdays with the Saints, in which a faculty member gives a public lecture about a selected saint. As you can imagine, these lectures usually include a number of very bad football puns. What do you expect from academics? Fifth, and perhaps most interesting of all, the campus ministry erects pop-up confessional booths on what is termed the God Quad. One can find the information online on a different website, and there's even a button to click that says Add to Google Calendar. Here's what the blurb says. In the midst of a busy game day this Saturday, take a moment to have an encounter with Jesus and receive the sacrament of confession. This unique concession stand offers heaping portions of mercy and doesn't cost a thing. Stop by for confession or simply to engage in conversation with one of our wonderful Holy Cross priests. That's exactly what the website says. And there's one more thing. On the side of the Hesburgh Library is a mosaic depicting Jesus holding his arms in the air. It's affectionately known as Touchdown Jesus. It depicts Christ surrounded by some of the theologians and teachers of Roman Catholicism. There's Thomas Aquinas and Augustine, along with many other saints and doctors of the church. The working title for the mural was Word of Life, and the goal, according to the artist, was to bring together the divine and the academic. It's a stunning piece on multiple levels. One aspect, of course, is that it's gigantic. It's on the side of the library, which is said to be the largest academic library in the world. That feature means that if you're sitting in the football stadium, you can't miss it. But what I find fascinating about it is that it brings together not merely the divine and the academic worlds, but also the world of football. The artist, Miller Cheats, depicts Jesus, in her I'm quoting now, anointing and rejoicing over the work of the teachers and doctors portrayed below him. That certainly seems correct. Yet from the vantage point of the stadium, what you see are Jesus' upstretched arms. And yes, it looks exactly like Jesus has just scored a touchdown. I can't pretend to know how administrators at Notre Dame think about this very close relationship that they've established between the religion known as Roman Catholicism and what I've been describing as the religion known as football. 
The mural dates back to 1964. And the idea of viewing football as a religion really didn't exist back then, or at least religion scholars weren't thinking in those terms. So on game day, does football merge with Catholicism? Or are they two separate components that operate alongside one another in a kind of synergistic way? I don't know the answer to that question, and perhaps it doesn't really matter. I do think that the way Notre Dame has interwoven football and faith, or maybe more accurately, one kind of faith with another kind of faith, is absolutely brilliant. I hope all of this has served to put your assumptions about religion into serious question. After all, as Socrates demonstrates over and over, you can only learn something if you first admit that you could possibly be wrong. But once you start to see through your assumptions, you can start to learn anew and to think differently. That's what I mean by becoming, the process in which we mature and come to a deeper understanding of what it means to be human and how we actually might get better at being human. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. Thanks for listening to On Becoming. You can reach me on Twitter, Instagram, and by way of the show's email, onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. I hope to hear from you soon.